Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information and advisory services partner for emerging market executives. We partner with business leaders at over 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools, and proprietary data that help power their emerging market business strategies. The focus of today's podcast is creating an effective ASEAN organization. My name is Richard Leggett, and I'm the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group. I'll be moderating today's podcast, and I'm joined today from our Singapore office by Shashir Singha, FSG's lead analyst for ASEAN Research. As a reminder, this podcast and all of FSG's content is available via our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. Shashir, welcome, and thanks for joining me to discuss this very much top-of-mind topic amongst our client space. Thanks a lot for having me, Rich. Why don't we get started? To set the table, uh, FSG has written extensively on the ASEAN opportunity for multinationals, covering a wide range of topics from understanding the AEC to portfolio allocation across the region to distribution best practices. But at the end of the day, success in the region really comes down to organizational and talent issues. So let me start with the first question, which is, what are some of the unique challenges that make designing an effective and efficient organization more complex in this region than other emerging markets? That's a great question and one that needs to be kept in mind for anyone who plans on developing and creating a successful organization in ASEAN. You know, we talk about ASEAN as one large market, but we know that it's a composite of many, many small countries, uh, at least six major small countries which you're going to be dealing with, uh, which already makes ASEAN very different from what you might face in China and in India or any of the other emerging markets. There are several other issues that you face in ASEAN. Not only are the markets small or relatively small, but they are culturally very different. Corruption levels are fairly high. Compliance standards are not so high. Quality of talent isn't very good. Typical issues that you face in the emerging markets. But you know, I guess the, the, the true complexity of this region comes from the fact that there are several small markets and they differ very much culturally in terms of religion, in terms of languages as well, and business etiquette. From your research with clients and your secondary analysis and discussions that you conducted across the FSG Expert Advisor Network, uh, it looks like you've uncovered four critical success factors for creating an efficient ASEAN organization. And I thought it's worthwhile as an executive summary, if we will, to spend a moment on each of them. Could you start, first of all, with the cost structure? Uh, Yes. And so what we realized when we had these conversations with many of the companies, we realized that the successful firms were doing a few things right. Many of these might sound obvious, but they are a challenge to manage in ASEAN because of the reasons that I just mentioned. So looking at costs, the solution that we saw many good companies putting into place is that they kept cost as low as possible, and they made investment in the people who were willing to generate the highest return for the firm and in the countries where they would see the highest return for themselves. Why is it difficult to keep costs low? You know, when you have individualized small countries, these country teams want to have their own strategies, and you cannot have that in a region that is made up of several small markets. You can have a regional strategy, but you can only go as far as having country-level tactics. Also, cultural differences mean that country teams might want too much localization. Both of these individualized strategies and excessive localization can easily make your cost too high. So keeping cost in control was a very big aspect of being successful in ASEAN. Well, it's interesting because your second factor is to empower local teams. So help me, first of all, explain that in more detail and help me reconcile that with your first point about keeping costs low. Localization, or I suppose decentralization, is basically an investment that you're making in people. And, and what we mean by empowering local teams is we're saying wherever you see the largest opportunity is the places where you want to be decentralizing the most. And that's where you want to empower the teams as much as possible. Empowering really means that 
you're allowing the decision to be made closest to the customer in order to make sure that you're outmaneuvering any competition, which you might face from local firms, or you might face from regional firms, or you might face from other multinationals. Uh, when you do empower teams, they're able to react much more quickly, and they're making the right decisions because they are on the ground, and they are the ones generating revenue. This is a bit of a challenge sometimes in, in ASEAN because companies might not have faith in the capabilities of the country teams. And as I mentioned earlier, compliance standards still remain fairly low. The third item you mentioned, a critical success factor, is, is streamlining functions to essentially prevent duplication. Yeah, and I, I believe this one becomes very obvious. You know, when you have five or six countries, what you want to avoid is having duplication of efforts. You do not want teams to be reinventing the wheel. Uh, if you have a Thailand team which is doing great in terms of sales operations, then you want to make sure that the Indonesian team is not trying to learn the same process again. And that's very important when you have several small countries to deal with. So the companies who are doing a good job, we're making sure that there's no duplication of efforts across the organization. And then your last critical success factor was controlling translations of regional strategies. What exactly does that mean? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Rich, you know, what happens is a lot of companies come into ASEAN and they have this plan, this vision for ASEAN, which is what they will call an ASEAN strategy. What then tends to happen is, you know, they set up country teams and country teams want to have their own set of strategies. And there's no longer a, an ASEAN strategy. There's a Thailand strategy, there's a Vietnam strategy, there's an Indonesia strategy, uh, because these cultures differ so much. And oftentimes country teams feel like there is a need for localization, but there might not be so much need for localization. So it's very important for companies to make sure that there is a regional strategy that's being put across the organization. Because if you don't, very quickly, you're going to start losing scale. Quality of standards will start to fall, and they'll differ very much from country to country. Then you're running very expensive operations in five different countries in five different styles. So it's important to make sure you keep a regional strategy in place. So in, in essence, Shashir, this interplay of unique challenges that you highlighted and then critical success factors really results in tension between two opposing forces. Maybe you could kind of elaborate on that a bit. On one side, Rich, you see that companies want to decentralize. ASEAN is one of the fastest growing regions in the world. You know, very seldom can you say that if you put these few small countries together, they're going to be as large as Brazil or Russia. I would think there's very few other parts of the world where you have what's called a small country, but it's as large as, you know, when you put them together, as large as one of the BRIC nations. And we expect them to grow at 4 to 7% over the next five years, and I would say over the next few decades as well. So it's an exciting region, huge amount of consumption coming from here. It's going to play a big part in manufacturing. In this kind of an environment, companies do want to empower their local teams and localize as much as possible and pass accountability to country organizations. So there is a need and a excitement around decentralization, but it's not so simple. You know, ASEAN is made up of these 10 different countries, as I mentioned. It's home to many different languages, cultures. It's still very immature in terms of its business environment. It's missing a lot of structural support. So giving over responsibility to the country teams is not so easy. And so some companies, what they feel is that centralization is the answer. You know, you run your operations out of Singapore, you control all sorts of efforts, be it marketing, be it uh, finance, be it sales, and you do not hand over much responsibility to the country team. So you have two very opposing forces at play. And eventually what you see companies do is fall somewhere in the middle based on the product that they're selling, the market they're in, and also their own company cultures. Yeah, and I imagine also their, their scale and maturity uh, in the region, which, you know, I, I, I suspect as we've seen in other regions, you'll, you'll see uh, an evolution there as well. Most definitely. As we mentioned earlier, decentralization is essentially investing in the market. So the more growth you see from the market, the more you invest, and therefore the more you decentralize because you let 
decisions to be made closer to the end customer. Now, we can't get into all of the practices and the case studies that you highlight. And, you know, for our listeners, the, the report is quite extensive. But, but maybe we could cover a few, starting with uh, how companies report, the reporting structures. In your analysis, what were the most common reporting structures and models that you uncovered? We came across three major models that I would say, and this is a bit of an oversimplification. There's a lot of nuances that I cannot get into in the interest of time. Uh, the three models, I would say, the first one we call the cost center model. In this, what you have is you have a GM of ASEAN who holds P&L responsibility, and they have country GMs, you know, country GM from Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, so on and so forth, reporting into this GM of ASEAN. The country GMs do not hold responsibility, so technically they are not serving as P&L holders, but they are serving as cost centers to the organization. This is not uncommon for companies who are still new to ASEAN. The only risk I would let companies know who are operating under this model is that you might end up having a ASEAN GMs that level, which sits in Singapore, becoming very, very expensive. And country teams might start to feel that they're not getting enough investments. The second model is the shared P&L model. Uh, in this, what happens is you have a regional team sitting in Singapore or Shanghai, but the P&L is handed over to the country teams. Uh, this is quite common. The reason I call it the shared P&L model is because uh, the marketing, the finance, the operations are still not reporting to your head of country. They're still reporting to the regional team. And finally, as you probably expect, you have a full P&L model where you have a head of country who holds P&L and everybody reports to them from supply chain to marketing to sales. And how do companies ensure there's enough cross-country communication uh, given you know, the number of countries and, and these different types of models? That's one of the things that we feel a lot of companies find quite difficult to attain. I would say that there are four, uh, four solutions that we came across that were quite interesting uh, that companies put into place. One is a dual hat system. This is something that you, de- you do see in Asia-Pacific countries. The company, what they tend to do is that if you have one country which is generating a lot of revenue for you or one BU that is generating a lot of revenue for you, you let the person who is heading that country or that BU continue to hold P&L for that unit but also become a coordinating person who coordinates across the various markets or coordinates across the various BUs. Their job then becomes not only to run the P&L, which is what keeps them happy, but also do coordination so that no, there's no duplication of efforts. This is something that I would say very important for the sales organization. Functional teams tend to talk to each other a lot more. You know, you have marketing teams talk to each other a lot more. Finance teams talk to each other a lot more. But when it comes to the commercial side of the organization, you sort of need somebody doing this for you actively. Otherwise, you, you know, this sort of sharing just happens once in a while when you have leadership meetings on a biannual basis. Companies have looked at other solutions. I don't want to get into too many details. Some of the companies we've heard of is uh, putting into place online portal where best practices are submitted by commercial teams. It's vetted by one, you know, a panel. And this best practice, the ones who win the best practices are then showcased on the com- company's website. They're also given a gift. If anybody in the company feels like that's the best practice that they want to understand more on, they can just directly connect with that team uh, to learn how that team did it. So there's a whole incentive system set up around sharing best practices. The most interesting model that I, I came across was the knowledge community. This company felt that emerging markets tend to have a lot of similar issues. They might have solved a problem in another part of the world, which they need to solve in another part of the world. So an ASEAN team might not have done a project, but maybe their South America team has done that. 
So they created knowledge communities around projects. So you know, the ASEAN team wants to talk to the South America team on a road project that they had done that's going to be very easy to do because everybody in the organization knows that these knowledge communities are set up around projects, so road projects, building projects, bridge projects, uh, all have different knowledge communities. So it was very interesting as a way to make sure there's communication and sharing. Sounds like FSG's business model. <laughs> I, um, I thought the virtual support model you mentioned was also interesting. Can you uh, quickly summarize that one? So that's something that would make a lot of sense in ASEAN. Oftentimes what you have is people are located uh, you know, in one country and you want everyone to move into, let's say, in Singapore, in your head office or in Shanghai. But not everyone is very happy to do so. And you're not always going to find the best talent all in Singapore and all in Philippines or in all in Malaysia. So there needs to be a level of flexibility. So how do you create flexibility while still taking care of your needs? The answer that some of the leading companies are putting into place uh, or seeing or putting into place is that they're okay with having a virtual support model. And their idea there is that if you find someone from a country who serves the role to the best of the abilities for that, you know, for that necessity, then let them stay where they need to be and let them support the region on a virtual basis. They further add a level of benefit to this because they let the person stay closest to wherever the biggest customer for them is. I'll give you a simple example. If you have an oil and gas expert who is from Malaysia, is a Malaysian, and doesn't want to move to Singapore, you let them stay in Malaysia. Not only do you have the benefit of having this expert on your system who can support the whole region, but they're also in Malaysia, which is one of the largest oil and gas countries in ASEAN. So they're very close to the end customer. They're a very big part of the market. So, you know, your expert being close to the end customer is exactly what you want, but they're still able to support the region virtually. So it's something I think more and more companies will be putting into place. Okay, I'm watching the clock and I think we're bumping up against time. So I, I just wanted to ask one final question, and it's a, it's a big one, which is, you know, take out your crystal ball. What does the winning ASEAN organization of the future look like? From your perspective? So for that, I guess one a story that I can share is that I had this conversation and this specific question that I that you were asking me, I asked this to a lot of clients that I talked to and everybody answered by saying there is no one answer. And the reason for that is because organizational structures differ a lot based on what you said earlier, Rich, which is the amount of penetration, the amount of growth you see in the market, company culture, the product that you have. What I could quickly say is that in the future, we're going to see four models. The first one that I had already talked about, which is a cost center model. You know, you have somebody who's running ASEAN for you sitting out of Singapore, and you have very little country teams. So it's a very centralized model. We might then see a bit of a clustering approach. This is for companies who feel that, you know, two or three countries for them function in the same way. So they could, let's say, group Singapore, Malaysia, Brunei together, and then put a Thailand, Vietnam, Myanmar together and say, look, these countries sort of function in the same way. So we're going to have one person running these clusters. That's for someone who has more faith and wants to get closer to the customer, but not as much. Then what you're going to see is some companies who are going in the direction of saying, let's remove the ASEAN organization altogether and have a head of APAC to whom everybody from ASEAN reports directly. So your head of Indonesia, head of Malaysia, head of Thailand report directly to the APAC organization. This is interesting and it's going to happen because a lot of companies feel that they have not given ASEAN enough attention and China and India take up their attention. So one way to bring corporate close to the market is actually to remove that ASEAN layer altogether. The last one I would say is for any company who's very large, some of which we have in the FSG network, you know, what you're going to see for them is they're going to have several BUs in each of the countries and each of the BUs will hold a P&L. So they could have a chemicals business in the country and a uh, manufacturing business in the country, and each of them would hold their own P&L, but they would all have the same set of shared services. So all of them would use the same HR, same finance, same marketing functions as well. So 
that's going to be the last model, I would say, that you might see for very large organizations in ASEAN. Great. This analysis and the topic are fascinating, and we barely scratched the surface. I think we could spend you know, literally hours discussing it. So I really encourage our listeners to read the report. And, and Shashir, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. As a reminder, you can speak with Shashir about our extensive canon of ASEAN insights and forecasts for the region at any time by simply reaching out via your client services director or directly. You can also access this full report and all of FSG's data and content on our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com or via your FSG iPad application. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance across your emerging market portfolio.